Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. This delightful speech on the Sermon on the Mount was given by W. Cleon Skousen on the hillside at the Sea of Galilee in April of 1985 to members on tour of the Holy Land. Dr. Skousen's insight and understanding of the Old and New Testament provides you a unique insight into the Jewish people's perspective when the Savior gave this iconic sermon. For a more detailed explanation on the Sermon on the Mount, you may enjoy Dr. Skousen's book, Days of the Living Christ, especially chapters 13 through 15. This volume is now available in audio format at audible.com or at Amazon. We hope you enjoy this speech, given near the actual location of the Savior's Sermon. So sit back and listen to the live presentation, and you may feel as if you are actually there on the hillside at the Sea of Galilee as you listen to the profound insights from W. Cleon Skousen found in the Sermon on the Mount. Enjoy! Whenever we talk about the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus apparently gave it twice. Once he came up onto the mount here where he had his immediate disciples and his quorum of the twelve with him. In fact, he gave that sermon shortly after he ordained the twelve and set them apart to their high calling as special witnesses. Then Luke says uh, in the uh, sixth chapter uh, that he later gave much of the Sermon on the Mount to the general populace of the people down on the plain. Now, we have an advantage when Jesus appeared among the Nephites as the resurrected Christ at the latter part of the year he was resurrected. He didn't appear among the Nephites immediately after his resurrection. It said toward the latter, the very latter part of the year, he appeared at Bountiful where there was a temple and he appeared under spectacular circumstances and he appeared among them in a big general conference that had been called by Nephi the third. And he called up the twelve that were going to be his special disciples. And then after all of them had come up and witnessed the wounds in his hands and his feet, about 2,500 people did it. It would probably take about three hours just to do that. He had them listen to this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, which begins in 3 Nephi chapter 12. Now he has the twelve with him, and he has all the disciples and congregation with him. Only part of the Sermon on the Mount are for the Twelve, then the rest is for the people in general. So we have a very special edition of the Sermon on the Mount in Third Nephi, which helps us understand to whom each part is addressed. Now when I was a very young person, I used to become terribly bothered by the so-called Beatitudes. (laughs) They turned me off. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, you mean it's just great to be poor. I was raised in a lot of poverty. uh, We lived in tents for two years when we first had to leave Canada and go to California, and we didn't mind. It was kind of like a perpetual vacation, but it almost sounds as though, you know, to be poor, that's the ultimate. Didn't seem like that made much sense. And um, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are lots of people who mourn who are never comforted. There's just something missing there. And in the edition that we have in Third Nephi, we have the whole structure, and we can understand it better. 
Now, in order to appreciate what Jesus told these people and what he meant by blessed are the poor and blessed are they that mourn, let me just lay this foundation. If, as they did in the early history of the church, you had an opportunity to ask the prophet for a revelation just for you, what do you think you would get? All the early saints wanted a personal revelation, but to their amazement, they all began to get practically the same revelation. And we would too. And it would probably be pretty much like the Sermon on the Mount, because that's for all of us. So if you really want to know what God wants you and me to do in our lifetime, read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, particularly in the fifth gospel, which is third Nephi, and you'll know what God's will is concerning you. And here's what he says. Jesus said it's very important for you to go out and preach the first four principles. Let them be absolutely confident and sure of God's existence and of the divinity of his son, Jesus Christ. Then let them repent and reform and abandon those terrible offenses they've been committing against God and man. And then I want them to enter into the waters of baptism, to be immersed, and to make covenant with me that they will endure to the end and obey my commandments. Then I want hands laid upon their heads for the gift of the Holy Ghost that will guide them into additional truth throughout their lives and ultimately lead them to all truth. Having said that, he said, and blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. Now that's what was bothering me. All of the poor are not blessed. All of those who are discouraged and downhearted are not blessed. Only those who are willing to come unto the Savior and say, all right, I've I reveled and rioted in all my sins and my evil ways. I am miserable. I loathe myself. And now I desire to seek from thee guidance in the way that I should go. And the Lord says, those who come unto me, though they be poor in spirit, meaning very discouraged, theirs yet can be the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what that message is. Most of you probably lived very normal lives. You probably never indulged yourself like Alma the Elder. Alma the Elder was a priest of King Noah. He did everything vicious and ugly and terrible and destructive that a human being can do who is rich and has a king who will support him in his evil ways. Then he listened to the prophet Abinadi and he said, I was wrong. What a horrible thing I have done to my God and to myself and to my children who will come after me. And in the deepest repentance, God accepted him completely and made him the next president of the church. Kind of fascinating. Then, amazing, he had a son, his youngest son apparently, who did the very same thing Alma the elder did. And while his father was president of the church, that boy went out with uh, four of the sons of the king to get all the young people to do something evil so they wouldn't feel like going to church you know, smoke a joint or whatever they did in those days. He said, and we would get them to do evil things and then they wouldn't want to go to church. And he was spending his life doing that until an angel finally came and appeared before Alma the Younger 
and spoke so loud with such a thunderous voice it knocked him to the ground. And the angel said to Alma the younger, if you want to go to hell, that's your prerogative. Just don't try to take the whole church with you. Now stand up. I want to tell you a few things. And he started talking loud again. It knocked Alma down a second time. This time he didn't get up. And those who were with him thought he was dead. And you remember they carried him to his father and for uh, three days and nights he was in the spirit world being instructed. And when he came back out, I'll tell you, he was as humble as his father had been. He, he, had been so, he was so poor in spirit, but he said, I've been promised I yet have a chance. I am not a son of perdition. Within one year, he became president of the church when Alma the elder died. Now that's what it means to be poor in spirit, to have so offended God that you loathe yourselves, as it says in Ezekiel, and feel that you are nothing but an evil thing. And I've had friends who went through that transition. One of them is Eldridge Cleaver. And he so hated himself when he found out there was a God and that communism was false and that he'd been a, a, a terrorist. He'd committed every crime in the book except actual murder. Uh, he just, he, he got a gun to kill himself. And then he remembered that his mother used to say, Jesus forgive us. And he wondered if God might forgive him. And so he started to cry. He just knelt before God, holding on to the railing. And he, he cried. And he said, but within a couple of hours, I was just soaking wet from perspiration. I finally fell on the bed in exhaustion and went to sleep. And when I woke up, I knew what I had to do. I had to go back home and pay my debt to society, voluntarily surrender myself, go back to prison and, prison and then see if I could find God. And just about a year ago, he was baptized into the church and has now been ordained an elder. And you see, they who are poor in spirit can enjoy the kingdom of God. And now that's closely related to the next one. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now some people mourn and go to liquor. Some people mourn and go to drugs. Some people mourn and go to suicide. Only those who mourn and come unto me, saith the Lord, shall be comforted. And that's true of each of us because I think all of us offend God often enough to feel a sense of mourning that we might have offended a loved one. We spoke harshly to a child, to a wife or a husband, and we feel badly about it. And the Lord says, do it my way. Ask their forgiveness and mine, and you will no longer feel badly about it. And then he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, who are the meek? In the previous chapter, the Lord says, The meek are those that are willing to be baptized. I've had a lot of friends, some of them with PhDs, one of them president of university. Oh, such great people. They loved the gospel. They even had a feeling that it might be true. The Spirit whispered to them it was true. But to be humbly baptized in the water of immersion, they were not that meek. And therefore they cannot inherit the earth, which will be the glory for the celestialized people who are of the highest degree of glory. They will not make it. And so that's what it means. Meekness means baptism not only recognizing the truthfulness of the gospel, but willing to be meek enough to go as a little child into the waters of baptism. And now, listen to this one. And they who hunger and thirst after righteousness 
shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, at the university, I used to tell my students when I was teaching the Book of Mormon and the Bible, are you really thirsty and hunger, hungry for a knowledge of the gospel? You really want to know a lot more, or are you satisfied? Most of the members of the church hit a plateau just barely above the first four principles, and they did in the days of Paul, and he got so angry with them. He said, you just lay the first four principles down continually. Now, don't abandon those, but go on unto perfection. Search for knowledge of things that otherwise you would never know. For example, the Lord commands us in the Doctrine and Covenants to search out the mysteries of the gospel that are expedient for you to understand. It's not expedient to understand where the ten tribes are. It is expedient for you to understand the atonement. Isn't that interesting? And once you get an understanding of the atonement, it will increase your faith and your determination and your resolution like I don't think anything else will. It's the most profound doctrine of the gospel. This is a mystery to most of the members of the church. They never studied it. In fact, they never even hungered to know what it really meant. They thought it was one of those things that you just take for granted on faith and walk away. No, the Lord said, hunger and thirst after righteousness and you shall be filled with light and knowledge, which is the Holy Ghost. Now listen to what it says. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When you've had the Lord forgive you, and that spirit of forgiveness comes into you and you feel so good about it, be merciful to other people. Be very patient with other people and forgive them. And I notice a lot of fine folks who are members of the church, they are not merciful. They're extremely judgmental. And um, they're almost self-righteous about other people. I think all of us are sometimes. Be merciful, for then you will obtain mercy. And then it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now here's something that will happen to you as the Holy Ghost works in you. And this is how you can test how fast you are progressing in the beautification of your spirit. You will notice that pornography and the things that are seductive become unpleasant to you. You hear a dirty joke being told, you're not smug or self-righteous, you just don't want to hear it. It's ugly. You walk away like you do from all other ugly things. That's what it means. And only those who are pure in heart will see God. And then it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Uh, what a great thing it is to have a peacemaker in your midst. Because it is so easy to set every, dis every difference in a framework of debate. As I used to say to my students, sometimes you'll hear a professor say something you feel confident is wrong. <laughs> There's two ways to approach a professor on the subject. One is to say, you're wrong. I can quote you a scripture that says just the opposite of what you just said. Now you've got a debate. And somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And usually it'll be the professor given the circumstances. <laughs> anyway, you, get, you immediately get contention 
which the Lord said is, is of Satan. Notice what you can do. You can say, Professor, may I ask a question? In view of what you've just said, how would we explain the verse which says so-and-so? And that professor may have an explanation, and the person who asked the question may say, oh, oh, I see, I didn't understand that myself. Both go away winners. Or the professor may say, well, now, I hadn't thought of that before. I want to think about that. Appreciate your calling that to my attention. You see what happens? There was no debate. And both sides win. Now, I have a son-in-law who has learned somewhere in his life, maybe from a wonderful father and mother, not to allow contention to exist in a group. And it's typical of him to say at a time that spirits are heating up, could I ask a question? And sometimes, if it's real critical, he'll say, I wonder if I could ask a stupid question. <laughs> when he says that, you know that it, it, he really is in a different position. But when he's all through, I notice people feel so good about it because he usually has been able to point out something that the debate at that point in time has not taken into consideration. Blessed are the peacemakers. And we have to learn how to be that in our family, in a Sunday school class, wherever we are. And now, blessed are they who are persecuted, not just for the sake of being persecuted. Some people just love to be persecuted. No, the Lord says, those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it says, blessed are ye when they shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. It better be false if it's true. <laughs> that's, not, that's no blessing. But if they say it against you falsely for the sake of the great kingdom that God is setting here upon the earth, trying to discredit you, trying to say you're controversial, you know, or trying to make you an offender for a word, then the Lord says, you, you will be blessed for my sake. And then finally, last of all, he says, how great shall be the joy, how exceedingly glad you will be, for great shall be your reward in heaven so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Now let me just mention something that is significant about what we've just read. These are the Beatitudes. I never knew what Beatitude meant. We used to use Beatitudes all the time. What do you think Beatitudes mean? When we were born, we were born with a set of instincts that told us to eat, that told us we wanted to possess things, uh, that gave us a desire for for nourishment, for water, and so forth. Um, gave us a desire to be attracted to the opposite sex. These are all instinctive. They're built right into us. And God put them there. Why? So we would survive. They're survival instincts. And they're all from God. Now he said, I gave those to you as a child. Now as you mature, I want you to be born again. I want you to get your spirit in charge of those instincts. And when your spirit is in charge of your body, you have been born again. And you cannot do that without being in touch with my spirit. So we want your spirit to lift itself up, associate itself with me and my spirit of inspiration in the Holy Ghost, and you will be born again. And that means 
your spirit is in charge of your body. Now, I don't know how it has been with you, but I have a big talk, a big discussion with my body frequently. I say to my body, uh-oh, there goes the alarm, time to get up. It said, I'm not getting up. I said, yeah, we got to get up. We'll miss the bus. Nope, I'm sleepy. I'm going to get up. Anyway, it's cold out there. Well, come on, let's just try it a little bit. I just put my toe out, see how that is. Put it out. See, it's cold. I told you it was cold. <laughs> Pull it back in. You have a big discussion. It goes on for about five minutes. Finally, you get upset and say, get up. You throw back the covers and you get up and there you go. Sometimes I say to my body, well, today we're going to fast. I'm not going to fast. <laughs> and yeah, we're going to fast. I'll give you a migraine headache. <laughs> You'll be sorry. I don't know how you are, but I have big talks like this all the time. And this is why it says in the Book of Mormon that the natural man is an enemy to God. Well, the natural man is what God gave us. That's our instinctive body. But as we mature, it, try, it actually opposes this growth process called the beautification of the spirit. That's what Beatitudes means. That's the beautification of the spirit. That's all Jesus was talking about. And having established this, that you believe in God, you mourn for your sins, you ask forgiveness of those you've offended as well as God, you enter into the waters of baptism, you hunger and thirst after light and knowledge and receive the Holy Ghost, and then determine to endure to the end, to be merciful, to be a peacemaker, to endure persecution, and endure to the end, that's the beautification of the Spirit. That's what beatitude means, beautification of the Spirit. Now, very quickly, let me go through the rest of the sermon, and I'm just going to hit the highlights. He said, I, I need leadership. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light. And I don't want you to put it under a bushel. I want you to be outstanding. I want you to be an influence in the community for good. I want you to be an influence in your family. Exercise leadership. I need leadership. Now in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, the Lord says in the pre-existence, I only had a few great leaders. And I have had to spread the human family across the earth in what have become known as empires in both number and geographical dimension according to the amount of leadership I could spare. I don't have much leadership. And in the pre-existence, I set apart my leadership people and called them Israel. In the pre-existence, you were called Israel. What does it mean? Those who overcome with God, meaning the soldiers of God. And that's why Jacob was given a new name. Instead of Jacob, which means the grasper, the usurper, gave him a new name, Israel soldier of God. That's who you are. And in the pre-existence, that's who you were. So remember what it means to be the salt and to be the light. Now Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy any of the commandments. The substantive gospel was, that was given to Moses, I don't change any of that. I want you to think a little higher though. To Moses I said, thou shalt not kill. I don't want you to even say words that provoke people to want to kill. 
don't constantly stir up strife between people and between individuals. I told Moses, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I say to you, do not lust after another man's wife or after someone of the opposite sex to desire fornication with him. The great deal of difference between lust and love. Lust is very selfish. Lust is a desire to possess, to exploit for self-satisfaction. Love has a very different connotation. If you love a person, you'd like to possess them. But you want to do something for them. You want to make them happy. You want to sacrifice for them. You want to give them something. That's love. Lust is selfish. Love is outgoing. Sacrificial. That's the difference. Jesus said, I said, thou shalt not steal, for example. Well, don't covet other people's goods. And there are those who use government to try and get other people's wealth, other people's property through the channels of law. There's a violation of God's commandments. It's lusting after other people's property. To take from the have, to give to the have-nots. God said to those who have, share with the have-nots. But he said that the abominable poor are those who covet that which they have not earned or are even willing to steal that which is not theirs. Now the Lord went on and said, I want to tell you how important the family is. There'll be little inconveniences and controversies between husband and wife. Believe me, divorce which is allowed in, he, he says there's a, there are situations where divorce is permissible. But he says that is the last resort. That is the ultimate. Try, try to avoid it every way that you can. Keep your family together if you can. And then he goes on to say, don't constantly resist every little evil that's imposed on you. Every little imposition. Turn your other cheek and get on with life. There's some people that just revel in every, oh, they just go about all the time telling how many bad things are happening to them. They just have such a good time telling you how everybody's abusing them and beating them and taking advantage of them. And the Lord says, get on with life. Now, there is a point of evil where you do resist. You remember when the Lord sent forth his apostles and said, take neither cloak nor purse nor sword? No. After their ministry was over, Jesus said, now, take purse, cloak, sword. And if you don't have a sword, you sell your cloak and buy a sword. You protect your lives. And in the days of Captain Moroni, the Lord said, any who will not fight to protect liberty and their wives and their children and the innocent and the weak, you dispatch them back to the spirit world for meditation. Isn't that interesting? Now, it says, pray for those who despitefully use you and your enemies. You know, I, I have some people who, who really counted them my personal enemy, particularly when we tried to teach things that um, were for their good, but politically they were opposed to that philosophy and perspective. They counted me a personal enemy because I was a spokesman for some of those principles. Now they are some of my best friends. And I'm glad we prayed for them, and I'm glad we worked with them, and I'm glad we patiently taught them, rather than to just say they are of no worth, 
count them out, strike them out. <laughs> Pray for your enemies. But I do have, once in a while, an individual who counts himself my enemy for whom I have to think twice before I pray <laughs> in their behalf. They really try my faith. <clears throat> now, the Savior says, and go on, if you will, and try to be perfect. Now, when you try to help the poor, do it quietly. Don't do it for publicity. Do it quietly. And um, there was a, a book written many years ago called The Magnificent Obsession of a man that just loved to go around and give away. He had a lot of money, and, and he'd go around and give it away, and he didn't want anybody to find out who did it. That was his magnificent obsession, and how much good that person did. And then the Lord says, when you pray, notice what you're doing. Pay attention to how you pray. Don't pray to be heard of men. Don't stand up there and give an oration. Don't see how you can impress the congregation. Bow your head and cry out unto me for that which you need. And he said, I'll give you an example of a prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That beautiful, simple prayer. But notice that he asked for specific things. I notice we sometimes get in a rut. Do you ever find yourself getting in a rut? You say the blessing on the food exactly the same way. And you and, and the children both say the prayer almost in the same phraseology, etc. Get used to praying for specifics, not generalities. And then your prayer is meaningful. And then it says when you fast, don't go around and say, you know, I'm fasting for 24 hours. And you look so sad, you know, put ashes on your forehead and so forth. I'm fasting, oh, I'm fasting. and I'm, I'm so weak, I'm fasting, you know. Anyway, there are, there are, there are people like that. <laughs> They're so proud of their humility. And uh, the Lord says, uh, he says, when you fast, look bright and, and beaming and shining and, and so forth. And in your heart, it is I who know you are sacrificing and are uncomfortable, but praying unto me. And then he says, treasures. As it says in, in the second chapter of Jacob, seek riches with which to do good. But the, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And in, uh, President Kimball has emphasized this, there's great wealth among our people in America, the richest people in the world, uh, except maybe some of the Arab sheiks <laughs> who struggle well. But as a people, we're the richest people in the world. We, we all think we're poor. Isn't that amazing? I was talking to a billionaire recently, and he said, I'm having such a hard time with my money. <laughs> I said, well, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I said in my heart, you should share some of it. <laughs> share your burden. Anyway, uh, money is a burden. Money is a burden. He says, from morning till night, I just interview people who come pleading for money, trying to decide where the best place to put it might be. But anyway... Our Heavenly Father said, Be generous with your wealth, whether you have little or much. And when President Kimball came back from meeting with the saints in an old, big old tin warehouse, dirt floor, filled with three or four thousand of the saints down, I think it was Mexico as I recall, he just stood up and 
without any script or anything, he just looked out at the members of the church and said, you are rich. You are rich. And then he gave a great talk on how necessary it was for us to reach down into our pockets and sacrifice a little. Not what you can spare. Give what you can't spare to those who need it much more desperately than those of us who possess it. This business of treasures is important. And then the Savior went on to say, and I'm almost finished now, um, he turned to the disciples, the 12 apostles, and said, now I don't want you to take any thought of tomorrow. Isn't that interesting? Only to the quorum of the 12 did he say that. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. As Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. Now that's just to the quorum of the twelve. As a parent of eight children and 42 grandchildren, I have a responsibility to pre prepare in many ways for tomorrow. And the Lord expects it of me. That's part of my stewardship. But he didn't want the apostles involved in worldly things. He said, I will take care of you. You just go forward and do this great work. Then he turned back to the rest of the congregation, to the multitude. Isn't that interesting? A lot of people have wondered about that business, taking no thought of tomorrow. That does not apply to the general membership of the church. That only applies to those who are in the full service of the kingdom. And then he went on and he said, be careful how you judge other people because I have to warn you, in the last judgment, I will judge you as you have judged other people. We need to be patient with others and forgiving because they who are Pharisaic in their judgment are going to be judged Pharisaically, harshly, as they have judged others, the Savior says. And then he said, uh, be careful about teaching the deeper principles of the gospel to those who are wicked and unworthy. He said, it's really like casting pearls before swine. They are not ready for it. And they will turn and rend you. It won't do them any good. So why do you cast your pearls? Do not do that. Be very discriminating about how you preach the gospel and to whom and when. And then he said, I want you to ask. Ask for that which is right and I will give it to you. Now that's kind of interesting because many times I'm sure we ask for that which would not be good for us. I've done that a few times myself. And later on was very glad the Lord didn't give it to me, especially at the time I asked for it. And so that's what the scripture says. Ask for that which is right, and it shall be given unto you. So I, I use, I've just learned to close my prayer by saying, Heavenly Father, if this is thy will, I seek this at thy hand at this time. And I seek the healing of this my son, or this my daughter. But be it unto thee. And we prayed and fasted over one of our daughters for a period of nearly 11 years. Desperately during a period of four years. Such a beautiful girl. But we couldn't keep her. And we lost her two days after her 20th birthday. And I turned to the passage of scripture where the Lord says, pray for those who are ill. And if it is for their benefit and well-being that they be healed, I will heal them. And if they die, they die unto me. And so we consecrated her to our Heavenly Father and sent her back to Him.
retaining our seven children who have been such a wonderful blessing to us. Uh, but that's the way we close our, our prayers. Let it be unto thee according to thy will, O God. And then the golden rule. Try to remember to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Even when you know that uh, they would do you. <laughs> as some people say, <clears throat> do unto others before they do unto you, <laughs> which is kind of a reverse order. It's awfully hard sometimes to be as kind to other people as you'd like to be them, have them be kind to you because they're not kind to you. But that's where we show our faith and our maturity. That's where you're the salt of the earth. That's when you're the light among men. When you show the capacity to do unto others as you would hope they would do unto you, even when you know they would take advantage of you. And now we come toward the conclusion. Jesus said, not many of you will make it. I have to tell you that. That straight is the gate and narrow is the way and very few of you will make it. Of those of you who are members of the kingdom, I have to warn you. You are like ten virgins, all of whom were given a lamp and some oil to wait for the bridegroom. Some of you will become careless and you will wander away. And your lamp will go out because you did not keep the Spirit of the Lord with you, which is the oil in the lamp. And you offended the Spirit. And then when it's very obvious that the bridegroom is coming, you will go to the other members of the church and ask them to associate uh, with you and, and build you up again and, and make it possible for you to have the Spirit. And there won't be time. There will be too many sins to repent of too much to overcome. The bridegroom will come and by the time you are ready and have repented and are prepared, when you knock at the door, he said, I will have to look at you and say, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Where were you when I wanted missionaries? Where were you when I needed tithes and offerings for the poor? Where were you when I needed good teachers? Where were you when I needed bishops and counselors and stake presidents? I'm sorry. I don't know you. And he said, I will be forced to close the door. And that's about the way he ends the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you ought to know that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You are not saved by the grace of God unless you try to do all that you can. And he says it is a false doctrine by those who throw themselves on Christ with all their sins and say, he'll take care of me. I believe in Christ now. I can go out and have a good time. He said that grace isn't even available to you. That is a false doctrine. He said you must do all that you can. Then my grace and my atonement will apply to you. And he that heareth these sayings and doeth them like a man who built a house upon the rock and when the storms of life came beat against it, it stood firm because it was built upon a rock. But he that heareth these sayings and doeth them not, he like a man who built a house upon the sand and when the tides came in and the storms beat upon it, it fell. It was built upon sand. And that's the way Jesus closed his great Sermon on the Mount designed partially for the apostles and the rest of it for all the members of the church. 
And if we were able to go to President Kimball and say, what would the Lord have me do? That's what you'd hear. You'd probably get the Sermon on the Mount. Before we have our closing song, let me just say a little special prayer, both for you and for me, that we will endure, that we will be equal to the challenge in our day as the prophets and apostles and disciples of God were true to him and obedient to him in their day. That would be my prayer for us as I bear testimony to the reality of the Son of God, even Jesus Christ, who walked on these shores, performed his great miracles, and eventually gave his very life for us. And I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>